Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Wow, well, um, I love the, the spirit that's in this room right now. The Holy Spirit is clearly and evidently with us. I don't know if you guys felt that during the worship, just the spirit of Christ being here. The spirit of worship that is just enthroned here, the worship of Jesus as Christ, as King, as Lord, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of Mary, the Son of Adam, the one who has come and, and has glorified himself. Amen? Um, <clears throat> You know, I, uh, I was just thinking about this, that, that the Father, he, he sent his Son, right? In, in former days, he spoke to us through prophets. He spent, sent his servants, the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, the very image of his likeness, the very imprinting of everything that he is upon a man sent to be among us the very radiance of his glory, Jesus the Christ, speaking to us. And this Jesus who we worship, he is, it says of him that, um, that he said that a body had been prepared for him to do his Father's will. You know, for the longest time, people sought to please God through sacrifices, through bulls, goats, lambs. God had commanded this, but the blood of those sacrifices, it could never cleanse. It could never wash away sin. It could never do the perfect work that it needed to do, which was to cleanse the very heavens, to cleanse the very heavens of the satanic influence of Satan, the accuser, you know, that's what Hebrews talks about. It talks about how the heavenlies, just as, as the temple needed to be cleansed with sacrificial blood and with water in order to be a place of worship, so the heavenlies needed to be cleansed of the unclean things. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, the temp- things of the temple, to be purified with these rites of sacrifices and cleansing of water, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so he went as a perfect sacrifice. And so consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. To do away with that old system of sacrifices, to become the perfect sacrifice that can lead us to the very throne of God. 
And so he had to come as flesh and blood. He has to co- had to come as a sacrifice so that he could do his Father's will. Ultimately, that's, that's what it was. It says, a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will. I have come to do your will. And that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was his prayer? Father, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He came to do his Father's will. You know, that's, that's the interesting thing. I don't know if you guys ever looked at that Hebrews 10 passage, but it's a quotation from uh, the Psalms. It's a quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And if you read that passage, it has a slight alteration. The author of Hebrews quoted it a little. He changed something to get a meaning across. And here it says, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. But if you look at Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, it says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but, and literally it says, and ears you have dug out for me. Ears you have dug out for me. Well, why would the author of Hebrews take this liberty with the Scripture to change the wording to get something else across? Well, the clear and evident meaning of that Psalm 40 passage is that ears you have dug out for me so that I can hear your will, so that I can listen to what you want, to your word, your will, and that I can then do it. And that's why he then says, I have come to do your will. But the author of Hebrews, he changes the wording to get this point across. That it was necessary for Christ to have a body prepared for him to do his Father's will. To accomplish his Father's will. Because his Father's will was not totally accomplished by the sacrifices that were done in the temple but it would be totally satisfied by this one sacrifice, the very body of Jesus the Christ. A body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. And so that's what we celebrate at Christmas. A body has been prepared for him to do his Father's will. So that's just for free. Um, But, you know... (laughs) I, um, <clears throat> I was um, <clears throat> I was thinking about this opportunity that I have to preach here on, on the 26th of December in the year of our Lord, 2021, and, um, and I was thinking about what an awesome opportunity I have because we're not in the middle of a series, we're not in the middle of a, of a preaching series, I don't have a text that I have to do, and uh, you know, with us, Lord willing, planting this church in Montpelier, Uh, I don't know how much more opportunity I have to preach to this church. And so I see this as a rare opportunity to be able to just um, just speak what is on my heart, what the Lord has been speaking to me, uh, to just give room for the Holy Spirit to speak. And so so I I have a lot of different things I want to share with you. Uh, I don't know how many of them I'll actually share with you, but a lot of things that, as I've been thinking about this church, and what I can share with them, I mean, the first thing I want to say to you is just how much I love this church and how much I love you all and just how much you are truly my joy 
and my pride and my boast before the Lord is just to see how the Lord has done just this amazing thing through the people of this church. How much zeal I see here, how much desire for repentance, how much desire to, to listen to the Lord, to love his word, right back at you. And uh, anyway, and so I, uh, I see so much... Uh, of what I love in this church, and so, um, but it doesn't hurt to remind you of some things. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to always have a reminder. <laughs> you know, that's what the Apostle Peter said. He said, you have no need of anybody to, to teach you these things, but I will always remind you of these things. I will always remind you. And he talks about how, in, in 2 Peter 1, how the problem with certain people who had become unfruitful and ineffective for the Lord, their problem was twofold. One of it was that um, they were not looking forward to uh, how they needed to prepare for heaven to store up riches for themselves, but the other part was that they had forgotten that they were cleansed of their former sin. They had forgotten. They had forgotten. And so he, he says, it's no problem that I have to remind you of the same things. It's no problem for me that I have to remind you. And so I'm going to be saying some things I think you've heard before, but it's no problem for me to remind you. You guys have a problem with that? No problem with you You guys doing that? So so let's just go ahead and pray and just invite the Spirit to be our teacher. Lord, oh, you are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You have authority and power over all things. We establish your authority in our hearts. Lord, would you conquer every rebel will in our hearts? We want our hearts to be entirely and wholly yours. Let us not be restrained in our affections. Widen our hearts to love you as we should. Widen our hearts to be steadfast in love to you, to be faithful to you as a wife of her youth who is faithful to her husband. Let us be faithful to you. Let us have a pure devotion. Let us be a holy people. Lord, we are in a culture that is vying for our affections, that is wrestling with our hearts to take away a pure and simple devotion to you. It wants to mix things into our hearts. It wants to produce covetousness. It wants to produce lusts. It wants us to drink of the golden cup of its whorings and its prostitutions, its abominations. It wants us to leave faithfulness from you, our husband, and commit sexual immorality to go after other gods. God, protect us from this evil culture. Protect us from this Babylon. Protect us from this mother of prostitutes. Teach us wholehearted devotion to you, Lord, lest we fall into judgment. Keep us from wrath. Keep us from sin. Teach your people now, Lord. Teach new king. Let holiness be completed among us, God. Let us take down the Baal worship, but not just the Baal worship, God. Let us take down the golden calves as well. Let us leave no idols untouched. 
touch our hearts right now, to have a wholehearted devotion to you, Lord. Lay your finger on the things that are keeping us from an entire heart devotion to you. Lord, you said that the problem with the Israelites was that they pursued worthless things and became worthless. They became what they pursued. And God, sometimes our problem is not simply running after sin, but it's running after worthless things. This culture is setting up so many worthless things that, for us to pursue. The latest movie, the latest show, the latest gadget, keeping up with the Kardashians. Lord, would you just take those things out of our heart? Rip out those worthless things, lest we become worthless. Oh, Lord, let us be a people of substance, not a worthless people, trash people. Oh, Lord, deepen our hearts to be a people of value. Show us the things in our heart that we're pursuing that are worthless. Make us hate them. Make us abhor them and detest them that we can see what they are, distractions, idols that take us away from wholehearted devotion to you. Show us those things, God. Let our one pursuit be Christ. Let our one pursuit be Christ. Let our one pursuit be the Lord of lords. May we, as we pursue Christ, bear the image of Christ, that as we pursue Christ, we would look like him, that we would be a body prepared for you to do your will. Oh, Lord, that we would be a body for you to do your will here in our generation. So fill us now, God. Teach us. Give clarity. Give boldness. And pray all these things in the name and power and authority of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> there's, um, there's a problem, I think, that I, I have felt, and maybe some of you can relate to it, a problem that I have felt that we aren't terribly distinguished from the people in the world. We're not distinguished in a, a couple ways. We're not distinguished by holiness. When people look at us, we look a lot like they do in our lifestyle. That's, that's number one. But the second thing is that there's this other problem that sometimes it can feel like, wow, I, I'm pursuing God. I'm doing the things that he tells me to do. I'm, I'm making my sacrifices. I'm going to the temple. And it seems like it's for nothing. It seems like it's in vain because the wicked seem like they're prospering. The people of this world seem like they're doing great. The evildoers, the oppressors, they seem like they're thriving. And the people of God, where's our abundance? Where's our prosperity? Look around Vermont. The people of God are in derision. Israel's in shambles. Jerusalem's walls have broken down. And yet, the enemies of God, the adversaries of God, they seem like they're doing fine. It makes me think of Psalm 10. The arrogance of the wicked 
the arrogance of the wicked, the arrogance of his heart. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursues the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. It's a boast. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The problem is their pride, their arrogance. We have a pride problem. We have pride marches. We have pride parades. And there is no humility in this culture. There is pride over the desires of our heart. Where is our humiliation? Where is our mourning for sin? His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding place, he murders the innocent. We're a culture of murdering the innocent. 50 million plus abortions since Roe v. Wade. There's blood on our hands in this country. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. There is no God. God will not hold me to account. And so I can be proud of my sin. That's the the spirit that I see here in our country. Does anybody else see that spirit here? Am I alone in seeing that? There's a spirit of pride, a spirit of arrogance. It's just like Babylon, the, the great Babylon, the mother of prostitutes. That is, that is exactly what this country is. She has a golden cup in her hand and she makes the nations drink of her filth. In her hand, a golden cup, Revelation 17, in her hand, a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, America the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Chapter 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. You know, I, I think about, I have a, a Ugandan friend, a couple Ugandan friends, and I think about uh, this complaint of Western influence, the Western powers that be coming into their country, for example, with homosexuality and transgenderism, where they reject these things entirely. They reject abortion. They have Christian principles, and they reject these things. It's not even a question of whether they should accept it or not. 
But you have these Western influences. You have America coming in and trying to force the golden cup. Drink, drink. Do you, this is a human rights issue. Do you want our funding? Well, you're going to have to change your laws. You're going to have to teach in your schools these things. Forcing it on these countries. Drink from the golden cup our impurities. Drink. Do you want to be wealthy and rich? Do you want our humanitarian aid? It comes with a ticket on it. It comes with a price tag. You must drink. But for everyone who drinks of that cup, there's another cup, the cup of wrath, of God's wrath that they will drink. And look at the judgment that is for Babylon. And look at this exhortation that is given to the people of God in the midst of it. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. The arrogance, the pride of Babylon. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. There's so much there for us. There's so much there for us. There is judgment coming for this arrogance, this pride, this lack of mourning over sin. And it's a judgment of fire. You know, I was reading uh, Isaiah 63 through 64. Uh, ben and I actually were very much impacted by this passage uh, this, these last few days. Uh, just this, it's this cry of Isaiah to the Lord, come down, rend the heavens with your presence. Come down. And this, this cry for, for, for the Lord's presence is interesting. As you read this passage, He's crying for the Lord to come in his presence for two things. One, for mercy for his people, that there may be a distinction made for his people, that we would see blessing for the people of God as the presence of God comes and blesses his people. But there's this other element, and that's judgment. Come with judgment. And I'm just going to read that part that, where it says that. <clears throat> He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, 
as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Oh, that you would come down, that the earth would melt at your presence, or the mountains would melt at your presence. He wants them to come down in judgment upon Babylon. You know, I think that sometimes we have this, uh, this perspective as Christians. We have this completely wrong perspective on the world. There, there's this desire, this holy desire. We want to see mercy and compassion. We want to see people come out of the world, just as we have had mercy and compassion for us, to come out of the world, to come to know the Lord. And that's good, but there's this part of us that says, and we don't want to see God's judgment We don't want to see God's judgment. But what you see in the scriptures is a craving for God's judgment. Come down. Judge evil Babylon. Lord, how long must we wait? Think about the saints at the sixth bowl as it was poured out. The saints, they said, when will you come? When will you come in judgment and judge the people who have murdered us? When will you come and destroy the ones who have persecuted us? And look at what happens to Babylon. Look at the saints, their exaltation over Babylon when it is destroyed. They're singing of praise when it is destroyed. In chapter 19, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah! (laughs) You see, they're praising God for her eternal destruction in hell. They're saying, I see that smoke go up and I love it. Praise God that that smoke is rising up from her corpse as she is burning. Do we have that heart? Do we have that heart as Christians to say, oh, Lord, that you would judge her. Lord, that you would come in justice. You know, it's so funny to me. um, Gabe mentioned this to me. Uh, Gabe lives in Montpelier. He mentioned to me, you know, uh, there was the, uh, I may be getting the details wrong, but the shooting of Ahmed Aubrey. Uh, the guys who shot him, they were recently, uh, they recently had their punishment given to them, right? And um, in Montpelier, there was great rejoicing. There were people running around, house to house, business to business, saying, have you heard? Have you heard? They're, they've been judged. Their punishment has been given to them. They were celebrating that justice had been done. I I just think that that is such a picture of rejoicing for justice and judgment. You know, we, we, we have to get this, that there is a rejoicing in justice when it is truly served. Yes, the evil one has been judged. Praise be to God. And that's what the saints are going to be doing. They're going to be leaping around, praising God, going home to home and saying, have you heard the mother of prostitutes has been judged? 
She has been judged by fire. That's our great hope. Now, that's our ultimate great hope. I mean, we have a, a hope before that, don't we? We have a hope for repentance. We have a hope for mercy. We have a hope for God to come in, in changing hearts, softening them to his word. But ultimately, there will be a day of judgment that must come. And that's our hope that lies at the end. That's our hope that lies on the other side. But, you know, there, there has been, there's been revival in this country before, right? We had this, we had a legacy here in America. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. There have been times of revival that have shaped this country. George Whitfield came here from England. He preached. Nearly every American heard that man preaching. And he didn't have TV, he didn't have radio, he just went around and preached six to eight hours a day, that man, preaching the word of God. His whole life was one big long sermon. The day, the day he died, he literally gave a sermon, and then he went home exhausted, and then he, as he was going upstairs, he had a candle in his hand that was burning, and he turned around to the people and gave one last final exhortation, and he wasn't done with it until the candle had gone all the way and burned out. That was just like his life, that candle. He was constantly preaching. And there was revival. There was revival. That was the legacy here for a while in this country. And it has changed. It has changed. We would be foolish to not see that. There has been a dispossession. There's been a trampling of the things of God. I think of what Isaiah said about the people of God in Israel. He said, your holy people held possession for a little while. Your, whole, your holy people held possession of the land for a little while, right? The people of Israel, they had been commanded to take the land of Israel, the promised land. And they, he says, we had it. We had it for a little while. We had it just for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. And that's, I think, what has become of us. We are like those over whom God never ruled. It's as if God never ruled here. And that's why he says, oh, that you would come down right after that. Oh, that you would come down and rend the heavens. Do you crave for a revival to happen in our country? Do you crave for the Holy Spirit to come down and change hearts? I crave for that pride that is in our country, that it would be demolished. Oh, Lord, demolish our pride. Bring us to humility. Bring us to humbleness. It's only the humble who will receive grace. You know, it's, um, there's kind of, it makes me think, well, how will it come? How will a revival come? Uh, there's so many answers to that question. That's such a big question. I, I think you could talk about that for a long time. But, Obviously, it, it takes place through two words, repentance and faith, obviously. 
I mean, something precedes that, and that's the Holy Spirit moving and birthing people. You have to be born of God. You, ha- you can't be born of the will of man. You can't be born of the will of the flesh. That's what John says. We're not born of the will of man or the will of flesh. We can't muster this up. We're not going to just, hey, let's have a revival meeting and boom, revival. The wind blows where it wishes. The Holy Spirit blows where he wants. And he has to come and birth his people. We have to be born again, which recently I found out born again, that phrase, it has a double meaning. It can be born again. It could be, uh, in the Greek that is, it can be interpreted as born again. It could be interpreted as born from above, born from heaven. And we must be born from heaven if we are to understand heavenly things. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he couldn't understand a word he was saying. He said, how can you, the greatest teacher of Israel, not understand what I'm saying? If you don't understand earthly things, how will you understand heavenly things? He couldn't understand because he was a natural man. And these spiritual things are discerned spiritually. They're discerned by the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit of God has to come and conceive in our hearts like he did in Mary. And birth, birth heavenly people, birth spiritual people who can discern things like the message of repentance, who can discern things like the message of the gospel so that repentance and faith can come. And so we have to pray. We have to get on our knees and beseech God, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that you would send your spirit like they did in the upper room. They prayed, oh, that you would come down. Christ told them, don't even go out until I have sent the spirit. How long will we wait? How long will we wait? 40 days. That's how long they were in the upper room praying. And the Holy Spirit came down And in one sermon, thousands came to know the Lord. (laughs) It takes the power of the Spirit. Are we praying enough, church? Are we praying enough? If we really want to see him come down and rend the heavens, if we want to see him come and conceive in our hearts, are we praying enough for the wind to blow? Are we praying enough for the clouds to come with rain, the latter rains? Can you say with a clear conscience, I'm praying enough? Are you staying up late at night beseeching the Lord, please come. Please come. We're in derision. Your people are in derision. Come and establish a distinction between us and the people of this world. Give us a blessing of your spirit. Are you fasting? Are you seeking him? We have to do that, church. We have to seek him. but it will bring repentance and faith. And you know, I I think with, um, there's this question of which comes first, right? The chicken or the egg. Which comes first, repentance or faith? And you know, I think that probably the truest statement is that they're both one and the same. If you really have true faith in the message of the gospel and who God is, It's not going to even be able to exist. A true faith without repentance, without a turning from sin, without a departing from iniquity and unrighteousness. You understand? But I will say that there is something powerful to be said. I would have never thought this until recently, that repentance sometimes precedes faith. 
And I, I saw this in the way, um, I mean, first of all, you see this through the apostles' teachings, Christ's teachings. There's this clear teaching of repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent. And then this message of belief that follows after that. Acts 2, the first sermon that Peter gave after Pentecost, the first thing he says to the people when they ask what they should do, he says, repent, repent, turn away from your sin. When God sent Jesus, what did he send first? He sent John the Baptist. What message did John the Baptist come with? What baptism did he come with? He came with a baptism of repentance. He came with a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, says Luke. You see, repentance was so necessary because the ground was hard. How can you have a seed fall on hard ground? You throw it on the, on the way where people are walking and it's a trampled ground. There's no way that seed is going gonna, is gonna to pierce. And so what is a, a bird going to do? It's going to get that seed, take it away. That's the, from the parable of Jesus, uh, the sower. That seed can't even penetrate the ground. And so what you need is a tilling of the ground. We need a tilling of hearts. We need to churn up the ground so that a seed can pierce, so that the rains of the Holy Spirit can penetrate that land, and that there can be fruit. And so that's why John the Baptist came with a gospel of repentance, a baptism of repentance. And he said to the people who came, who told you to come to flee the judgment? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let us not be some fake repentance, some one-time statement of, oh, I, I, I'll accept it with joy, this message. I will turn away from my sin. And then no repentance truly follow. And so a message of repentance is really needed. You know, I think that we try to come to people sometimes just preaching Jesus, and we say, uh, when we talk about morality, with unbelievers. People say, oh, don't talk about that stuff. Don't talk about morality. Don't talk about the law of God. Just talk about Jesus. Now, I, I get the idea because we know Jesus is the only way that people are going to be saved. But you can't have Jesus without repentance. You can't have Jesus without a turning away of sin. How can you turn to Christ in faith when you're holding on to your false gods? How can you have Christ as Lord when you have something else seated on the throne of your heart? You must abolish the false idols. You must abolish Satan off of the throne first before you can seat Christ on the throne. And so we must, we establish the law. We establish the law of God. We teach people, we tell people the truth about what is right in his eyes, what is wrong in his eyes, and we call people to repentance and we call people to belief. We do not merely preach Jesus. We preach the whole gospel. We preach repentance. And we preach Christ. Now, <clears throat> one final thing I want to share with you guys um, <clears throat> is the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, the prophet. I think that if we want to see revival, 
in our land, there's, there's a lot of words in Malachi that are so helpful for us. I wish I could read the whole book of Malachi to you right now. I'll do it. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do it. I've done things like that before. It wouldn't be past me. I wouldn't put it past me. But, um, but in, in Malachi, you see the people are confused. The people don't get it. They have all these, these things, these questions, they, and these wrong ways of thinking. There's, there's this, they see how it seems like it's vain for them to follow God. And because they see they're following God, how it's not producing anything, they're not thriving, but then the wicked are thriving. Just like we talked about earlier. In Malachi 2, verse 17, they says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, in Malachi 3, verse 13, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. It's all for nothing. All the serving of God, all these things that I'm doing, reading the word, going to church, praying, it's all producing nothing, and the evil are thriving. That's basically what they're saying here. And so, what is the message that God has for them? He he has a few things that he says to them. It's probably best summarized by what he says next in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Then you will see the distinction. It is those who fear him. And this fearing is described throughout this book of Malachi because it was so obvious that the Israelites were not fearing him. He says in Malachi 1, He says, a son honors his father, in verse 8 or 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. 
when you offer blind animals in sacrifice? Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us after giving that kind of a sacrifice with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. No. Oh, he begs with them. He begs with them. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Would someone just please shut the doors to the temple? Would someone close the church? Shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Their sacrifices were evil to the Lord. He was begging them, please just stop, stop bringing sacrifice. Stop bringing your offerings. I'm sick of it. You're bringing me defective, deficient sacrifices. What kind of fear is that? You're bringing me your least. You're bringing me your worst. You know, how does that translate to us, right? I think that there's this thing in the American church. I think that we, as, as ministers, honestly, we're guilty of this. We love it when we see someone doing something, any little thing. Oh, my goodness, you're doing something great. Oh, it's like I, I heard this story from Francis Chan. He's talked about how this middle school minister, there's this middle school ministry, and they had the the worship going, and nobody would sing along, but when one person would sing along, the middle school minister would say, oh, that's great, that's great that you're singing. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you singing. That's become the standard of success for us, is when we see someone just doing something. Oh, finally, someone's doing something. They're giving a little bit. They're giving a little bit of their life. But that's not what God wants. He doesn't want our bare minimum. He doesn't want our bare minimum. He rejects it entirely. He says, that's an abomination to me. That's defective worship. That's deficient worship. I reject it. It's hateful to me when you bring that to me, that kind of worship. I want a wholehearted worship. I want your whole heart. You think I want this little thing that you're throwing up? I want all of you. This is pathetic. This is sad. Shut the doors. I think we as ministers, we've, we've encouraged that, honestly, in America because we're so desperate to see something from people. But the Lord, he, he wants all of us. He wants wholehearted worship. He wants our whole bodies our whole hearts, our whole minds. What's the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your everything. <laughs> all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your might, with your everything. 
That's what he wants. Is that law impossible? Yes. But all things are possible with God. And so it is possible by, for those who are born by the Spirit. The righteous law of God is fulfilled in those who walk by the Spirit. And so it is possible. Don't look at that and say, that's impossible, I can't do that. Say, that's impossible, I can't do that. <laughs> and so I must go on my knees and seek the Spirit of God that I may give him this body to do his will. I may give him this body to do his will. What blessing, what promise does he have for those of us when we give him everything? What blessing is promised? It says in Malachi 3, verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Bring the full tithe. Why are you holding back from me what I deserve? I deserve your everything. Bring the tithe to God. Bring what's rightfully his. Bring what's stamped in his image. Pay to Caesar what's Caesar's, but bring to God what the things that are God's, the things that are in his image. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. You will not labor in vain and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That is what the Lord is asking for us. I believe that, you know, as we celebrate Jesus coming with a body, and he says, a body you prepared for me to do your will, I believe that there is a sense in which that is true of his church, that we are his body. We are his body the very body that the Father's prepared for him to still accomplish his will in our day and age. Right? After saying in Hebrews 10, after saying, a body you prepared for me to do your will, he then goes on to talk about our need to walk by faith, to do his will. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your, or no, wait, sorry, yeah. Do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, he wants us to do the will of God. He wants us to do his will. And so a body he has prepared, a body he has prepared to do his will. We are his body. This is the body that he's prepared in this generation to do his will. Do you get that? We are his body to do his will. So let us offer our whole hearts. Let's offer our whole everything. Let's ask the Lord, is there something that is restraining my affections? Is there something that's narrowing my heart? 
Is there some deficient or defective worship that I've been giving to you that you're saying, close the doors, stop, and let me give my whole heart to you. Let me conquer these idols. Let me say no to the culture and all the ways that it's pulling me, me and my affections. Let me have a wholehearted devotion to you. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to do these things. Heavenly Father, Lord of all, we come to you. Oh, God, we come to you. And we say, here we are, a body. Here we are, a living sacrifice made holy by the blood of the Lamb. A holy and acceptable sacrifice for you. This is our spiritual form of worship. We offer ourselves. New King Church, our everything. Lord, bring us, first of all, the godly grief of repentance. If there are things that are restraining our affection, would you bring us godly grief that leads to salvation without regret, that we would not look back and regret but in joy we would see what you have accomplished in us. As we turn from our rebellion, as we turn from sin, as we turn from half-hearted worship, and Lord, now we put you to the test. Oh Lord, what will you do when people rouse themselves to take hold of the Lord? What will you do we're putting you to the test in this, God. You have given us many great and precious promises. What will you do when we come to you offering our everything? When we come to you offering the whole tithe, our whole bodies, our whole hearts, what will you do? We come to put you to the test in this, God. Show us the blessing. Show us your power. Oh, Lord, we are here to put you to the test in this. Not to put you to the test with sin or the ways that we may in, in rebellion and half-hearted worship, but in this, that you would be true to your promises. So Lord, prove yourself. Prove your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your righteousness, your justice, your mercy to those who turn to you. Give us godly tears as we turn to you. And we pray all these things in the name and power and authority of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.